everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Myo Minds podcast. As always, I am your host, George, and today I'm here with the wonderful James Downs. Hi, James. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. It's a little bit warm today, and I'm not complaining about that. I, my body, I feel like I have, um, I can't remember what, you might know this, what part of your brain is it that detects temperature? Is it like your hypothalamus? or some part of your brain. Sounds fancy, let's go with that. Um, I think I think it's that part of your brain. I think mine is like super sensitive um, because when it's cold, I start shivering really quickly, like a tiny bit cold and my body shivers and then a tiny bit hot and I sweat. So the heat just, I'm a sweaty boy. <laughs> yeah, I, I read some research recently about that and eating disorders and the hypersensitivity to heat in eating disorder something to do with the autonomic nervous system which sounds really fancy i don't actually know what it means but there's something about that in eating disorders some kind of correlation some relationship with being really sensitive to heat i don't know exactly what it is and i don't want to make any false claims on your podcast (laughs) but it might be something to do with that maybe we'll go and have a research of that after yeah i've never heard that before that is very interesting maybe that's it maybe it's my eating disorder past that is heightened me to it maybe that's yeah who knows i recently learned that because i get really bad this is maybe oversharing for the podcast but i get really bad ibs and i've recently learned that apparently people who um go through bulimia apparently that's a thing that often crops up yeah so two minutes into the podcast ibs sharing all the symptoms (laughs) i think that is that is true i mean if you think about eating disorders and disturbance to eating in general whether that's a disorder or not that's going to affect your whole digestive system, isn't it? And I think it's no surprise that people might have IBS or stomach issues. And I, in my experience, used a lot of laxatives in a way that damaged the motility or the mobility of my digestive system. And that's taken a very long time to come back. So I think that these things do leave their lasting changes. And I guess this is something we'll talk about more during the podcast, but I'm really interested in the biological parts of eating disorders as well as the psychological parts. And very recently I was diagnosed myself with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, Mm. which is a rare genetic condition, which is to do with your collagen production and it affects your whole body including your digestive system and actually there's some research to suggest that there is more hypermobility um, including conditions like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome amongst people with eating disorders or that it's associated with changes to your gastric system your um, gastrointestinal system so I think all these things are really related or they might be some of those factors that predispose people to eating disorders or might give you worse symptoms or make it harder to get out of eating disorders when you develop them I think the, all these things are really fascinating and the big thing that I've taken away from my recent diagnosis for example is that actually there's so much that we don't know or there's so much research to still be done about the different impacts 
for different people of eating disorders and how that affects the whole body. Because we often think with eating disorders that it's all in our head. And quite rightly, it's a, a mental health problem. It's a psychological problem. And there are cognitive components like thoughts and feelings about, about food. But there are also all these biological things and biological effects. And I think it's really hard to untangle some of those things. Mm. And we don't look always necessarily at the whole picture when we're thinking about treating and understanding eating disorders. So I think that it's you know, a big passion of mine, but I don't have all the answers. I don't think that science has all the answers yet. But yeah, straight in there with, with IBS, with temperature, <laughs> with the nervous system. These things are all really relevant. I think we have to be big picture when it comes to understanding eating disorders. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think yeah, we could probably just end the podcast here. I feel like we've touched on a lot of things already. So <laughs> um, thank you everyone for listening. No, I'm joking. Um, but yeah, I that yeah, I think it's um it's almost like the the Dunning Kruger effect, that thing of you know, where I feel like because I'm quite new to the um eating disorder world at least I've, I've kind of self-taught myself a lot of it I did it a bit with my master's degree but I didn't do kind of a lot into it I've self-taught a lot and I think when I first went into it I was like oh I've really got a good grasp of this and you kind of get that initial spike of like oh I know a lot here and then the more you mm. delve into it the more you realize how little we all know and how much there is to learn and yeah it's just so complex yeah but you can learn about eating disorders quite quickly actually, because the amount of research that's been done compared to other conditions is not actually a huge amount. Yeah. So you can get your head around current understandings of eating disorders, and then you think, oh, I know everything about eating disorders. And then things don't quite fit your expectations or you read about something else and then you think, oh, there's a gap. And then you realize, wow, there is so much that we don't know. Yeah. And eating disorders are so under-researched and I think less than one pound per person who's affected by an eating disorder is spent on research, which is, a fraction of what it is for cancer, a fraction of what it is for other mental health problems. Yeah. And this really has to change because we base our treatments on the evidence base, don't we? NICE, uh, you know, National Institute of Clinical Excellence says you have to have treatments in the NHS which have an evidence base. But if our evidence base is super limited, then we're only going to have a certain range of treatments that's based on the current evidence. And that's going to miss out a whole load of people who've not been researched. It's going to miss out men who have not really been included in research historically it's going to miss out people with different kinds of eating problems the research really heavily biased still towards anorexia mm -hmm. so i guess there's this conflict isn't there you want to do stuff that's evidence-based but if the evidence is really limited and you can only stick to the evidence you're just going to be stuck doing the same thing over and over and we know that best outcomes for people with eating disorders you know the best treatment at the right time around 40 to 50% of people will recover, which is really not good enough. And we can expect more. And I definitely believe that people can recover and that more people than that can recover. But I think it's to do with that evidence base. I think it's to do with the amount of research and the amount that's been spent on that research and, and how much more we have to do is a big question for the whole field of eating disorders, the whole eating disorders world, as you, as you called it, which I kind of like, you know, when you get into the eating disorders world, it's full of really friendly people who are really interested in this subject. But I think like we shouldn't need to have a little eating disorder world. Um, we should be part of part of the bigger world, and everybody should be aware of eating disorders. So yeah, lots of conflicts in there, aren't there? About yeah. Evidence uh, about research and things. Yeah, I think I think me and you share a very uh, similar idea of how we kind of address it, or at least maybe we share. Um, same interest in in how we would want to impact it because i'm i'm also a strong believer that the the way that we 
you have to start with the foundation and the foundation is knowledge and understanding what what's going on and that's research and you know it's interesting you say how you, know, you can learn about eating disorders so quickly um because there's so little and with my experience because i'm really interested in the kind of muscularity side that's like that's like even quicker <laughs> because there is nothing yeah it's so interesting because i'm currently helping um, a PhD student at UCL in London uh, who's doing a PhD in eating disorders and he doesn't really know exactly what he wants to do but he knows that he's interested in researching muscle dysmorphia and whether that is an eating disorder or how it relates to eating disorders and so I'm part of this thesis committee who's like giving him advice which I find is a bit weird because I don't have a PhD myself but there we go I guess I'm an expert by experience <laughs> whatever that means um, but it's really interesting. I've been saying to him, like, go for it, because there aren't many academic papers in this area. Point to me, you know, show me an academic paper about muscle dysmorphia in men who might have eating disorders. It just doesn't exist. Mm. So for him, I guess that's really fresh ground and a really great high-impact PhD project. But it is yeah. surprising when you look at other conditions and see how many thousands of academic papers there are um, for those conditions. And then you can look at the eating disorders ones and it's on one page. So yeah. it's, it's definitely that we have a long way to go. I think part of that is listening to people's lived experiences as well. That is part of the knowledge, isn't it? So the foundation of knowledge is hearing people and understanding their experiences of eating disorders. And I think there are big groups of people who still haven't had their voices heard in that research. Mm. But it's also about understanding the science and the biology and the physiology. And, you know, how does the metabolism change in bulimia nervosa? Where are the research papers on that? Because people don't really know exactly what happens. And nobody can explain to you as a patient what exactly is happening metabolically. I mean, some doctors might they'll piece it together, but very often you're left in the dark about what's happening to your own body, which is a really confusing place to be. And then how do you navigate making the right choices for your recovery and mm. trying to get better? I think it's really important that we empower people with knowledge, but currently we don't have the best knowledge that's out there and we need to really push to make sure that that happens as well as listening to people's experiences because that qualitative part is always gonna be centrally important isn't it people's real experiences of what it's like to live with eating disorders so i'm really interested in the qualitative research and that's kind of my background and i'm involved in these different research projects like i mm. said to you just now and i'm not a scientist but i i think that we do need more of the quantitative and the really analytical stuff as well and that way we might be able to tell a more positive story about eating disorders because it can seem all doom and gloom can't it and you look mm. at the news seems to be negative story after negative story we don't do this we don't have the services for this we don't record deaths properly we don't have accessible treatments and stuff and that doesn't have to be the case at all it's just we need to make different choices at a systemic level at a high level you know that this is a priority for research this is a priority for public spending because we can save loads of money if we invest in eating disorders so i think that's what drives my work and what i do is just remembering that it doesn't need to be this way it, it really doesn't and that we could tell a much more positive story for more people and more people could get treatment more people could get treatment that works if we have more understanding and we have more money to, su to support that so yeah that's a little bit about what I do and, and why I do it yeah yeah and I thank you for sharing that and it's um yeah I'm actually in the process myself of working on a, a PhD proposal and um, looking at uh, muscularity oriented disordered eating 
um, with yeah. someone from King's College London. So maybe I can get your opinion on that later on. Um, so you definitely but, don't. You don't want to send me your PhD proposal because I think I've gotten this reputation now of being really ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> People send me their research grant proposals and things. And I'm also co-editing a book at the moment about eating difficulties. And I do find it really hard to be polite whilst saying like I don't think this is right or you've missed this or and, and it's quite difficult because there's little me who's got my master's fine um but I don't have a PhD or anything and then I'm telling these prestigious academics like oh you can't say that or you've written that completely wrong um so it's a difficult one but if you do send me your proposal I'll, I'll be as nice as possible no um, I I, I encourage I encourage the cruelty please be I, I'm I'm I, I feel like whenever I send someone my work and they just send back, oh, it's great. I always kind of feel a bit let down because I'm like, oh, but I know it's not. <laughs> like I know. Yeah, I know this. Yeah. I'm good value for money on that. I think. <laughs> but we, we do need research into that. And it's a, it's a proposed new category of eating disorder, isn't it? Muscle oriented disordered eating, yeah. which isn't currently recognized as an eating disorder. But there seems to be like a phenomena that people are experiencing that. And you only have to go to the gym to see people who are very rigid about their exercise, about their food intake, that are having the same, you know, protein shakes and everything, even in some cases injecting steroids. And yeah. they won't do social things because the gym has to come first. And these are all features of something being a disorder that affects your life and limits your life and makes your life smaller. It's just that I don't think that those people would think that they had an eating disorder and professionals wouldn't recognize that they did. But perhaps it is a problem and perhaps it is affecting their life. So I think that this is an example of, like we said about the evidence base, that it misses people out and it misses changing yeah. times and missing, misses sort of evolving patterns in, in society. So maybe we do need to look again at what the different criteria are and the different categories. Yeah. And honestly, we're, we're kind of opening up a can of worms here with me talking about muscularity stuff. So I'm going to kind of reel us back because I want to hear about you and otherwise I'm going to start talking too much into this. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to kind of segue us off this. Um, we, 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 you spoke about the fact that, you know, you're part of this um, PhDs. I can't remember the, the team that the whatever. I can't remember the word you said, but as an expert by experience. Um, yeah. And I actually recently I was at the... Um, the QED annual forum that you spoke at. And there was one thing that you said in that, which I, I kind of want you to to touch on. Hopefully you remember it. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot here a bit, um, but I have, I resonated with what you said so much and I've, and I've kind of explained it to other people since, because I really agree with it. And you said how you don't resonate with, I'm not going to say too much because I kind of want to hear how you say, you said that you don't resonate with the idea of an eating disorder voice. Yeah, I think, this almost sort of annoys me. It doesn't annoy me as an, as an idea, the eating disorder voice. I think some people find that they experience an eating disorder voice or part of themselves or their experience that is somehow separate to them. And they can separate it off and say, okay, that's the eating disorder talking and it's not me. And that's a very helpful thing for those people. And I think that can be very helpful for carers. Like if you're a parent of somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder or a partner, and their behavior is really problematic and sometimes confrontational or, you know, all the difficulties that can come up with trying to support somebody with an eating disorder. You know, it can be helpful to say that's not them, that's an eating disorder voice. And that's fine. But I think that it doesn't work for everybody. So the bit that annoys me is when people assume that it's the case for everybody. I think I find that really problematic because 
there is no one size fits all eating disorder. There is no one kind of anorexia, no one kind of bulimia. I think the eating disorder voice is really associated with anorexia mm. um, more often and that it's this kind of controlling, manipulative kind of voice that is driving people's behavior. And I was told that I had an eating disorder voice from a youngish age. I was diagnosed with anorexia at 14. And I was always told, oh, that's the eating disorder speaking. And it was a way of almost shutting me down because why was it for a professional to say what the eating disorder was or wasn't? And I never related to this idea of the eating disorder voice. I just thought it was me. And I kind of, I could kind of see what I was doing and I could understand my behavior to a degree. Yes, I was doing problematic, difficult things, but I never thought that I was being controlled by something else. And I know that people don't think it's literally a voice. They're not having auditory hallucinations. We've got to be clear about that. But I just think some people don't resonate with that idea. So if we're going to clinically use ideas like eating disorder voice as though they apply to everybody without even checking, is this something that you relate to? And I think, again, it's that thing of missing people out. There will be people that it works for, that it's a really helpful tool, really helps them to feel autonomy and agency and that it's not them and they can separate themselves out from it and that's great but if somebody just doesn't relate to it at all then I think it's difficult if you're just putting that understanding on them and we often impose understandings of people's experiences onto them and I think that's wrong mm -hmm. I think we should be helping people to understand what they think to be true about their eating disorder or their experience without doing the interpretation for them and saying, this is, this is what it's like. This is the typical presentation. That must be what you have. And I think that at its worst, that kind of interpretation or that kind of putting on to somebody can be really damaging. And I remember when I developed anorexia, I was already in child and adolescent mental health services, struggling with OCD and what I later understood was ADHD. And I felt like I wasn't really being understood or listened to. And I sort of escalated my behavior into eating disorder behaviors, basically, because I felt that then they would listen to me. And there was an element of, it's quite controversial to say, there's an element of me sort of choosing to do that, but actually I didn't have any other options. And it was mm. sort of my only way of saying, look, can you listen to me? And I did get more attention for doing those things they did sort of treat me more seriously and were worried about my physical health and all that kind of stuff. But that still wasn't what I really wanted. But along with that came loads of understandings about what it has, what it is to be an eat. Along with that came loads of understandings about what it is to have an eating disorder that I felt were put onto me that I didn't really have. Mm. And I almost sort of felt that I had to behave like an anorexic behaves or I had to be scared of certain foods and all these kinds of things that I didn't really have when I first went into services and, and trying to get help for my mental health. And those things were really rewarded and they were explained as, you know, that's the eating disorder talking, that's anorexia. And I sort of felt like this idea of anorexia was almost like put on me in a way. And I know that's a really difficult thing to try and untangle, especially looking back, but it didn't help me to, to sort of be told this is what's happening to you without me relating to it. I think that's very different from somebody saying to you, look, this is what might be happening to you from a sort of foundation of knowledge, like you said, 
but we don't have the evidence that says everybody has an eating disorder voice, everybody has anorexia like this, everybody will have these behaviors. So I felt like it was just sort of like copy and pasted onto me. You're now an anorexic, you will do all these things and you should be doing all these things. You know, obviously if you want to exercise, that's going to be compulsive exercise. I never had a problem with exercise in my anorexia at the beginning, but because I was told you can't exercise, and when I gained weight again, I wasn't allowed to do any movement at all. It became a massive problem that I didn't have. Mm. So I think that if we're just sort of taking these really conventional understandings and saying, this is what it is, this is what you've got, this is why, without listening to people and checking, actually, is that your experience? Do you feel like you have an eating disorder voice? Mm. Then I think we're doing a disservice to people. And it, it, in the end, it can make people worse than they actually are. And I'm not saying that it caused me to be much, much worse, that one specific thing. But I think it was a combination of things where I felt really unheard. And everybody needs to be heard and understood. And if they feel they don't have any sort of voice, fine. Treat them in a way that respects that. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I think we often like to look at things in kind of a reduced way. You know, we take that reductionist viewpoint and, um, you know, when we're trying to build our knowledge around eating disorders, if we can just shove one little one, what seems like a small part of it into a box or everyone has an eating disorder voice and then throw that away and keep that there, then we, then we can just build off of that. Um, yeah. But then often what we do is we forget that actually it is much more complicated than that. We need to look more into that. And um, instead we just kind of leave it off to the side. And, and like you're saying, that can lead to, um, like you, I guess, I guess I've kind of experienced that. I was just thinking about it then where, um, when people knew I had an eating disorder, not, not that it was like an excitement, but I guess when I said something that ticked a box, it would almost be like, a, Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what people with eating disorders do. Oh yeah. That's what, that's what happens when you, you have this behavior. Yeah. It's like in the repertoire of what's expected of somebody who's got an eating disorder and then people feel like they know what to do and how to respond to that. And it's all nice and comfortable enough because it fits what's expected. But what about people who don't fit that? And every time we're thinking about learning about eating disorders, you know, you can learn about eating disorders and think this is what anorexia typically looks like. But you're, if you're only sticking to that understanding, you're going to miss out everybody who doesn't have it in the typical kind of way. And at the worst end of it, that's really alienating for people who have to meet that in clinical settings. So people shouldn't be having that in, in clinical settings. And I think that we always have to think like, who is this going to miss out? Mm. You know, you could talk about muscle oriented disordered eating and develop a whole new diagnostic criteria. What about the person who doesn't fit two out of the five criteria? It has to be able, you know, you have to be able to tailor it to them as well. So there's, got to be a flexibility in our understanding and one thing I worry about especially with like awareness raising is that we sometimes think awareness raising is just learning a whole set of stereotypes and it's not I think if you want to learn about eating disorders you yeah you go and learn like what are the basic features of different eating disorders but then you remember that whichever individual person who you meet in your life has an eating disorder is going to be individually unique to them and you can't just paste that category onto them and be like, oh, you're, you're the believer. And that happened to me recently at the GP where I went to the GP face to face. I went into the room and she was like, oh, you're the bulimic. Okay. Um, what? Before we'd even said anything. She what? was like, oh, right, bulimia. Yeah, yeah, bulimia. Okay. And I was like, yes, okay. You probably do do that. If you're a doctor, you have your patient. You're like, okay, they're, they're the one with the heart problem and they've got this and this and this. But you don't just 
sort of well you for one you don't say that out yeah loud, yeah but you don't just refer to the criteria rather than the person in front of you and I'm always saying that to people like the best source of evidence that you ever have certainly like in a clinical setting or a personal setting in your in your day-to-day life the best source of evidence you have is the person in front of you not the textbook and that can be useful it can help inform you more broadly but it has to be that it it fits and it works for the actual person mm. and I'm really tired of having different understandings put on me and you know it's a really simple one is that yes I have bulimia now but I look very well from the outside I do lots of well I do lots in general <laughs> but I, I teach yoga and dance and I'm very physically fit and active and nobody would think that I was struggling with an eating disorder because of how I look and that's at the most simple level isn't it that we have an image and that we're very visual as a as a species and so people assume that I'm fine and I think that we can't assume anything that's the big sort of takeaway isn't it that we can't assume there's one way that somebody looks or one way that somebody experiences an eating disorder because all of these stereotypes and our current understandings you know in the research and all that stuff they're all really limited Mm. it doesn't mean that you know people with different experiences of eating disorders don't have eating disorders it's just that they don't fit the box and actually you look at the prevalence of different eating disorders and most people don't neatly fit into a box Mm. so I think that we have to be really careful with these ideas of eating disorder voice and putting people in boxes and another one that really frustrates me which I talk about quite often is and I hear this nearly all the time and I wonder if you hear it eating disorders are all about control yeah yeah all the time it it really really annoys me it just like it really annoys me because how can anybody say something's all about something it's like you have to pick out one thing and say it's all about that and it's always all about that it's this sort of universal thing and reductionist so reductionist isn't it I hear it all the time and I hear it amongst eating disorders clinicians doctors people with experience of eating disorders I don't want to say to them like you know that's wrong because it's not if that's what they think but it's, I just don't agree because I think for me, control isn't a feeling and everybody's like, you need to feel like you're in control. Well, control is not a feeling. What is it about then? And for me, it's always been about safety. It's, you know, if you want to feel in control, to be in control for me has been a substitute for feeling safe when I've not felt safe or not felt like I am, when I felt threatened by not being in control of other things, felt fundamentally unsafe, then I have controlled the food and whatever in order to feel safe or in order to regulate my emotions or in order to avoid this situation or that situation. All really valid reasons to have an eating disorder. Obviously, you'd want to cope in more healthy ways than an eating disorder in the long term, you know. But I think nothing is all about anything. Mm. Um, And if we say that it is, we just assume that it is for everybody. It's it misses so many people out. Yeah, and like and like you say, um, I think the wor- the worst thing is the impact it has on the people who are the you know experts by experience because you know if they're not someone who's knowledgeable on it or at least not someone who's willing to you know if you're in a position of power in the fact that you know, you're the clinician you're the person that's supposed to know about it and you say oh they're all about control they're immediately going to be like oh all my stuff is about control everything's about control like, i can't you can't i can't go against this clinician whose job is yeah. to diagnose me and there's so much power in that isn't there and like you said if somebody says oh you have an eating disorder voice then of course you're going to go away and think oh i have an eating disorder voice now don't i um and how do i relate to that and what if you didn't and there are so many 
things that happen like that and there's so much power in that and I suppose that's why clinicians might be scared of saying the wrong thing or that their words have a lot of weight but it's not that hard to not say the wrong thing you know and and to steer away from making those kind of judgments and being really sort of you know universalist about it or, or reductionist this is a better word like you said and I can think of loads of examples of that for me and, and one thing that most eating disorders clinicians and, and therapists that I've worked with over the years have said to me is that you know James you can't focus on things and you can't stick at things because you can't give yourself the whole plate and the whole meal you can only have a little bite from it just like your anorexia just like you know or you can have loads of it and then you have to check it all out just like your bulimia and it's a really nice metaphor and I can see why therapists would love it mm. but actually I had ADHD which was diagnosed in my 30s and I was told like you can't have the whole plate because you don't love yourself and isn't that just like your eating disorder and it was rubbish it was complete rubbish and I felt like oh I obviously don't love myself when my self-esteem has been really good for quite a long time now I struggled with depression when I was much much younger but I don't have any mood problems at all I'm very confident and I have normal fluctuations of emotions that I'm pretty in touch with but I don't have this feeling of loathing myself and hating myself. It's a stereotype about people with eating disorders that my therapists, many of them, really loved and really latched onto as an explanation for why I couldn't sit in a lecture or why I couldn't study or I couldn't stick at certain things. And it was ADHD. And I think like, I was so confused by those stories that were put onto me rather than somebody like helping me to work out what the actual story was and trying to see the whole picture or listen to my experiences and try and help me to understand that it was ADHD when I was younger than 31, because by the time of 31, you know, I've never been able to study anything. I've always really struggled to stick at things and everything. And, and that's cost me a lot. And I would have loved to have known sooner and all the signs were there. But I think people can sometimes be quite blinded by these stereotypes or quite blinded by eating disorders actually, where they see the eating disorder and they don't see anything else at all or things are missed out, like big things are missed out, like for me, like the ADHD and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So I think we have to try and not be blinded by these very narrow stereotypes and mm. by eating disorders in general and think, you know, even somebody with an eating disorder that's very, very severe and it dominates their life, there is still more to that person. It just might be absolutely pushed to the margins. It might be really tiny. But what about that bit that's not the eating disorder? What about connecting with that bit? I mean, I'm, 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 reducing it to eating disorder and not eating disorder like the eating mm. disorder voice thing maybe it's not as simple as that but I think that it's you know there's always so much more to look at and to consider and yeah. perhaps because it's people are pressured they can only have like five minutes with the patient they have to see this they have to see that it does become reductionist but I think we have to get much better at, at broadening out our perspective yeah I think I think it's okay to to have that reduction because I think you have to otherwise it would ever because everything's so overly like everything's way too complicated to to consider everything when you're looking yeah. at research and you know trying to understand something but when like you say you know your best piece of evidence is the person in front of you like and and every time you're sat down with a patient or whatever the first thing you should be doing is looking at their experiences how they feel and um one thing that kind of came to mind was I, I was having a conversation yesterday actually about the fact that the we can look at our memories in a different lens um, as we get older and, and it can change the way we perceive memory. So actually 
at the time it may have you may have seen something in a, so the, the my example is i did a boxing fight when i was um at uni and i lost yeah. the match uh, i lost the fight and and at the time it didn't bother me at all i was having such a good laugh with my friends it was great um but since then looking back at it because my whole kind of muscularity oriented whatever's going on in my head is all kind of around masculinity and being like a you know that 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 the you know the man since so to speak in inverted yeah. commas now when i look back at that i think oh that was so embarrassing that was such a thing but actually at the time it wasn't an issue and i think when we give people terms like eating disorder voice or we say to people that oh you know it, it's all about control you're giving them this lens to remember everything in a different way and it might even make it harder for people to figure out what's actually going on yeah it could do it could sort of do that thing of blinding them i guess from seeing other things as well and you know your interpretation can change over time can't it i look back at my experiences and I look back at anorexia, for example, and everybody was telling me it was really dangerous and that I shouldn't be doing it and, and all these things. And I remember it was a really horrible experience, but in some ways it kept me alive. Mm. And that's not to advocate eating disorders, but I felt such painful, difficult emotions in my body, which is where we feel emotions, that I wanted to switch them off and I wanted to shut my body down. And perhaps the emotions would have overwhelmed me and put me at psychological risk but I was safe because I didn't have to feel them because of anorexia so you know these are really fundamental and powerful reasons to to engage in those behaviors and I could look back and think gosh that whole thing was awful but I do think no I was probably doing the best that I could with the options that are available to me and it kept me alive and yeah it's had terrible consequences and I wouldn't choose it and I wish I had other options at the time and I wish that people had supported me better and things like that but I don't blame myself for that anymore and I don't need to feel like I was doing this terrible thing and I was hurting my family and everything I can just really try and do it with compassion and I think a big part of recovery and coming to terms with anything is trying to see things through a lens that's as compassionate as you possibly can be towards yourself because it's so easy to be blaming of yourself feel really ashamed and if people around you have told you that it's your fault or not being very sympathetic or you know whether it's very deliberately or kind of you know covertly stigmatized you and suggested that it is your fault and i've had lots of that as well then then it can be really hard to get that compassionate perspective but i think you have to always keep the lens a bit open that you could see things in a different way you know that you could see things from a different perspective even well or perhaps especially when you feel particularly stuck in things and that you just can't see a way out yeah. And uh, I, I want, I want to get onto your kind of like um, your yoga and your dance and stuff, but I just, I kind of, a question has just come to my mind and I really want to ask cause I, I'm interested in, in the story. So you, you said that, you know, now you're in this place where you, you know, you're much more stable and you're with your kind of depression and stuff isn't there. Um, and you've mm. obviously come from this position. You mentioned that, you know, you would feel it, you felt like you wanted to shut down your body. You, how, mm. how is, how did that, journey go like what you know how did you get to this place where you're in such a better position yeah it's been very long i think mm. <laughs> I, yeah i knew i knew that wasn't something you could probably put into a short 10 second answer but i'm just interested yeah, yeah it's been really long um i guess there's been many parts to that coming back into my body i guess part of it was getting back to a normal weight that's mm obviously important and I think that that controversially perhaps that you know BMI is 
important that we need people need to be at a, a safe and healthy weight range um but then when i did gain the weight i felt a lot worse because all those emotions that i was talking about you know the, the pain and the difficulty uh came back into the body and i found it really hard to regulate those feelings um i ended up dropping out of medical school nearly 10 years ago now and ended up finally getting specialist psychological therapy for eating disorders which i haven't been able to access before and it was more than six years after i was diagnosed with severe anorexia that i got psychological therapy which i think is absolutely outrageous looking back because by that point it's so entrenched and it was because i was deemed to be too underweight to have therapy so i did get dbt dialectical behavior therapy in the end which really helped me to get to a safer place it didn't change sort of the eating disorder side of things but it made me much better at asking for help trying to say no to things that i didn't want and to avoid much more harmful ways and risky ways of, of coping um, around sort of suicidal behavior and stuff like that um since then i felt like my mood has only gone up and my anxiety has gone down a lot and i've gradually very slowly built a support network that i find really helpful and moved into sort of more embodied approaches to understanding my experience and that's related to the yoga and the, and the dance and i suppose by finally having the understanding that i was experiencing adhd as a child and that i was born with a genetic condition that has given me a lot of physical pain in my body which perhaps i didn't want to feel so i had anorexia um, and understanding my journey through treatment as being really traumatic and problematic in itself i think all of those things have really helped me to realize like it wasn't all my fault i'm not saying it was all somebody else's fault or it was all services that were all terrible because they weren't all terrible and there are brilliant clinicians out there who really want to help people and do amazing work all the time but i think finally having that understanding has been what's made sort of the last bit really fit together for me mm. and yeah it's like a big jigsaw isn't it trying to get all the pieces together because you need a biological baseline that is you know stable enough for you to do some of the psychological work when you need a social support network that makes you feel like you're supported and you need to be in an environment that doesn't feel threatening you know so good relationships and, and all these things you need to have enough money to not feel like you're going to be homeless any moment and i think all those parts come come together to create well-being and they look really different for different people and there are different parts of the puzzle for different people as well some things that are really important to some people and some things that are just not to other people and so i would have liked in some of my treatment to have had some of the other pieces considered because it was just you know you must eat um and that's kind of about it mm -hmm. <laughs> and and i think that there were so many more things and it was actually like much much later in my life so far that somebody asked me you know what do you want your life to be like without the eating disorder it was always just you must not have the eating disorder you mustn't do that if you do that we'll section you if you don't do that we'll do this and it was all threatening and very negative and actually what i would have loved would have been somebody to say what do you want then and how can we help you to get there and for me to trust them that they would help me and for it to be a positive kind of experience rather than something that was just all about sort of conflict and and negative motivations to recover i guess so like recovering out of fear mm. or recovering out of anxiety and stress i think like hope hopefully people want to recover and part of that is helping people to feel that it is possible 
because if you don't think it's possible, why would you even try? And I got to that point where I felt like, well, I failed the first time around. So why would I bother putting all that effort in recovery, which is so much effort, if you don't think it's going to work? So I think that it's been so many things. And people often say to me, like, oh, you're so inspiring and so strong to have recovered from an eating disorder, which I haven't recovered fully. <laughs> so that's already a bit annoying. But I'm like, well, not really, because it was my family, my friends, my work. You know, I love my work. There are so many things that I get up every day for and feel really excited about and my friends and my relationships and my community and hardly any of those things are, are just me and my own strength but we love this story that people overcome things and people overcome them because they have their own personal strength and actually it's about all these things that are around somebody as well and people often ask how can I help my friend with an eating disorder as though you can tell them some kind of magic clinical advice and it's always like be a really good friend because everybody needs really good friends. Mm. Everybody needs like somebody to listen to them, somebody to ask them when they're all right, like really basic things. And it's nothing to do with having specialist knowledge about eating disorders, which people often think that they need. But, you know, I think about the things that helped me the most. A lot of them are not clinical. A lot of them are holistic, music, movement, uh, friends, positive relationships. And those weren't talked about in, in services um, and often actually services made me worse which is not what I'm saying to everybody that all services make people worse definitely go and get help if you need help but I think that we have to be honest that things don't always work for everybody um, and so yeah I, I think there are so many answers to that question it's such a big question but finally understanding like exactly what's going on for me in a way that really really works has been fundamental and having all these different sources of support, which I've been really lucky to, to have or have actually worked quite hard to sort of get in get in place. Yeah, and, and I know you said there that the, you know, a part of your um, recovery or you know, the, where you're at now, a big part of that is your your movement and, and stuff. And I, I do want to talk about, we are the Myo Minds podcast, we do talk about exercise. Um, so, you yeah. know, and normally, you know, we often talk about, I think a lot of the conversations I have are with people who have had issues with it. And I know you said you, you kind of got them issues pushed onto yeah. you. Um, but I know now you actually, your exercise really helps you. And I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to hear about that. Yeah. There are lots of parts to this. I think I've always been really, really active since a young age and had a quite a sort of free range childhood. So I didn't feel like I was doing exercise, but we were always just running around outside all the time. Like, no sort of time to come home or anything and, and just really active at the time and part of that was probably because I have this genetic condition which gives me lots of joint pain if I sit still so I'm always on the go and I think there's a big association between Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility syndromes as well and ADHD and I'm very much on the hyperactive side of things so I'm always kind of on the go I don't really like to sit down like I'm sitting down for this podcast and it doesn't feel comfortable and you know, I, I guess I've always been like that. And when I got to school, in high school, I couldn't really sit in the classroom without a lot of physical discomfort. And so, like, I guess you could see that's a problem, but actually I need a certain degree of movement and that, that keeps me going. And I think that when I started having anorexia and perhaps I'd had like puberty and everything and all these changes and a lot of pain in my body and pain swallowing and all this kind of stuff, I probably wanted to shut down my body and just not feel all these things. Mm. And when it 
sort of came back to life again. I didn't know how to regulate it. And I was told you can't exercise at all, which I think is very unnatural. And I think that the body is designed to move and we all need to move. And I think there are not many cases where people should be banned from exercising. But this happens a lot in eating disorders treatment. And I think, sure, for some people who are very physiologically at risk, they shouldn't be exercising. But your body will pretty soon want to move. Mm. And if services and treatment are saying to people like, you can't do that, that's the anorexia speaking, or we can't trust you to do that. We can't trust you to have a healthy relationship with exercise. But at the same time, they don't do anything to help people to have a healthy relationship with exercise then surprise, surprise, they're not going to develop a healthy relationship with exercise. You know, it gives you no tools to, to redevelop or reimagine that relationship, whether or not it was healthy, you know, in the first place. Mm. And so it felt like there was this really taboo subject and I had refueled my body and was itching to move, especially because I had ADHD and was always on the go beforehand. And I was told that I couldn't and I felt like a caged animal. And I was like covertly exercising and going out running and getting injuries because I'm much more prone to injuries and running on stress factors and all these kinds of things. And mm. it was really toxic. And I wish I'd had somebody to help me with that relationship with exercise. And I think that it's a hugely overlooked thing in our, in our treatment of eating disorders. It's like, it's almost absent this idea of embodiment of how people feel in their bodies. And there can be really negative embodied states, you know, like I feel difficult emotions and I don't want to feel them that's an unpleasant sensation or there can be positive embodied states like when you feel really at ease or really happy and I have no idea what those different states were when I had an eating disorder and when I came out of it and I felt like what is this body I don't feel comfortable in it and I just kind of don't want to have it but I know that I've got to and for me the real work of recovering from the eating disorder has been getting into that and get really getting into like what is it to be a a body and your body is the vehicle for all your experiences everything you have in your life is a bodily experience mm. and I feel like that was hugely overlooked in treatment and I finally sort of got there because DBT has a strong mindfulness component so you know sitting down meditating and all that stuff and that was quite hard for me because I kind of like to be moving a bit and just sitting down without doing anything beforehand is a bit of an extreme exposure for me, or it was at the time. And so I, I found, oh, actually, I feel a bit better if I move and do the mindfulness at the same time, like a walking meditation or this thing called yoga, which I wanted to do for ages and ages, but could never let myself do. And I had like every tab saved on my computer of all the places I could do yoga in the local area for about 10 years <laughs> before I actually did it. And one of the reasons I didn't do it was because I knew it would be good for me <laughs> and I, I just couldn't allow myself to do something that would be good for me um, and it was this idea was quite scary of like exposing yourself to your body and I kind of knew that was where the real work was and I kind of didn't feel ready to go there so in the end I did come to yoga and that was when I was 27 and my ex-partner sort of encouraged me to go because he was going every day to yoga and I went and I just loved it. And it sounds like a cliche, but I felt like I was coming home into mm. yoga, but really I was probably coming home to my body and was very excited about all the different feelings I could feel in my body and all the different things I could experience when I felt safe in my body in the context of a class that was structured, that was, you know, like a safe environment and everything. And I just felt like such wonder at being 
in a body. And that was something that was never on the table in, in treatment. It was always, you must be scared of your body. If you want to exercise, it must be a bad thing. It must be because it's toxic, you know, and actually your body's going to want to move and it's going to need to move for so many hours per week to stay nice and healthy. And in my case, I need to move and do strength exercises to protect my joints because my joints are really vulnerable because I'm hypermobile. So actually doing loads of strength training has really massively helped me because going to yoga was great and I could do everything straight away because I have a genetic condition. Everybody's always like, why are you so flexible? I'm like, well, it's not because I practiced. It's just because I was born like that. And, you know, there are these genetic differences in people, but I was getting a lot of injuries as well. And I could go really, really far, really fast. And I would often injure myself and not feel it at the time and then feel it afterwards because like, I would move into my joints so easily. And so doing the strength stuff has been really, really helpful as well. And that's what a doctor would prescribe for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But if you have an eating disorder, apparently you can't do it. So it's, it's really complicated. It's been so complicated to navigate that. And when I did get into exercise, you know, and tried with the best intentions to have a healthy relationship with exercise, because I knew that when I did all the toxic sort of running all the time and all of that, that it wasn't the best for me and for my body and it was damaging me. You know, I, I wanted to do things differently and I was really motivated. It's just, I didn't really have much support. And when I went to yoga, I went in a hundred miles an hour, like I kind of do with everything and then tried to find a balance. And I have found a balance now and it really, really works for me. And I find it really, really helpful. I teach a lot of yoga. So I became a teacher very, very quickly, which is not really allowed. But because I was so flexible, I just lied and pretended that I'd done yoga for ages. And that's one problem with the fitness industry and, and with the well-being industry is that, you know, sometimes it's too easy to qualify to do training, personal training, or, you know, to lead group classes, which might require quite a lot of expertise, actually, and to be able to respond to individual body types and things. But now I teach teacher training and I try and be really sort of strict about alignment and anatomy and things and, and emphasize the importance of the knowledge that you need to have to do this kind of stuff to not hurt yourself and not to hurt other people. But yeah, I teach and I try and share this joy of being curious about being in your body and to notice all the different kinds of states within your body, to not have to go 100 miles an hour, to not have to be punishing yourself, to find some kind of balance. And there's something for everyone in yoga. It's very varied and, and there are so many different kinds of practices and I teach lots of different kinds and I also teach bar which I find really fun it's kind of like a ballet hybrid very intense sort of but low impact very very strengthening mm -hmm. um the hips and glutes and, and knees and core and everything really helps me um so yeah I I try and share it now out of the enthusiasm for it that I have from my own experience but obviously recognizing that everyone's experience is different and I'm just there as a teacher to facilitate people to have that connection with their bodies, um, not to copy me, not to try and be the same as me, um, but to try and take it into their own experience and become more aware of their bodies. Because I think we are all in our heads a lot of the time, aren't we? And I know that, you know, I, I know you through working at the college and, you know, through emailing or whatever, or through Instagram. And that's one way of interacting with the world, isn't, isn't it? And, you know, people who are listening, you might have a version of you that is emails interacting with the world or Instagram interacting with the world. But I believe that we are bodies interacting with the world as well and not just minds or whatever. And I'm in Cambridge and I came to Cambridge to do my masters. And 
yeah, people are in their heads all the time and that's great and it has its has its purpose but that brain is part of your body and I don't see a separation between the two and I think we still see a separation between the two too much actually um, but I'm always encouraging people to like, really get into their bodies and to not even perhaps have to think or or put words to it just to just to move in your body and and to hopefully feel safe in your body because we all need to feel safe I thought what you said about masculinity was really interesting. I just find it really difficult sometimes being a man with an eating disorder because people expect that you can talk about being a man with an eating disorder as though it's the same thing for all men. And in a way, I was almost kind of like fetishized for being a man with an eating disorder when I was younger. Like all these clinicians were like, oh, it's a man with an eating disorder. Um, isn't that really interesting? Isn't that really niche? And eating disorders in men are not niche at all. Yeah. They're actually widespread when you think I, about it. I literally, sorry, sorry, condition. sorry to yeah. butt in, um, but you know, you yeah. know Hannah from the Full of Beans podcast. Um, yeah. She literally today messaged me to to write this um, post for her about the muscularity stuff, and I put right, right at the start that um, kind of what you're saying there that you know I think often when we when we talk about a subsection of something, our immediate assumption is that that must be really small and and simple. We're actually male eating disorders are so much more complex, and you know my experience is so different to every other guy's experience. And so yeah, I really yeah. agree with you. Yeah, and it's a hugely prevalent thing and massively like undiagnosed and everything. So how can I be niche or how, you know, why is my experience unique? It's unique to me, but there are loads of other men and I find it quite difficult when people will still ask me to give the male experience. I'm like, there is no one male experience. And like you and I are so different, for example, like I don't have this idea of masculinity that I feel that I need to live up to at all. I am really comfortable with my masculinity and femininity. I don't even really understand them because I'm just me and I've never really had a problem with that. Although lots of clinicians have always said like, oh, you have an eating disorder because you're gay and you haven't come to terms with it, which is also not true. It's just a stereotype. It's just an assumption. Yeah. And I feel really at, at ease with whatever different elements are at play in my body. And that shows that my two men can have completely different experiences. Like I don't have this muscle oriented thing. I like to be strong because I love to be able to do certain things with my body that I think feel really nice and to have the functional benefit of not degenerating my joints, but I'm not really fixated on it in, in other ways. And that just goes to show that two people could experience things so, so differently and that we can't expect us as individuals to represent a whole group of people who've got really diverse experiences. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree 100%. It's so much more complicated. And again, it's that reductionist thing, isn't it? It's so easy for us to, it, it's kind of, I think it's, I almost think it's, I'm, I'm no um, psychologist, but I almost feel like it's human nature to want to make things simple. It make it just feels comfortable to be like, okay, that's, all guys have it like this and that's just the way guys have it and and all all women have it like this and it's so much more complicated than that and that's again why research is so important and why you know pushing the research and trying to get people to discover more about eating disorders is so important um i want to kind of start to wrap things up so i have three questions that i ask all my guests so the first question is also, they're not really questions, so I've titled them the not question questions. And um, the first one is a name of a person, either real or fictional, who inspires you. 
this is really hard because so many people inspire me all the time. They're all hard, I'm afraid. (laughs) It's really hard to know what angle to go on. There's a difference, isn't there, between people who you like just because you really like them and people who inspire you. Now, I have to tell you who inspires me. It's got to be Phoebe Waller-Bridge because I have her, and I'm showing you now, on my phone as my phone background. (laughs) Um, You can't see any of the messages that come up on my phone, but she's on my phone background sitting. There's a really famous photo of her sitting at the Emmys with all these different awards that she's won for Fleabag, the TV show. And I find her really inspiring because I just want to be her and (laughs) I love her creativity and the work that she's done has been amazing, I think. I think she's just uniquely gifted. And also because when I watched Fleabag, I felt like I was watching myself on screen and I don't think I've ever related to a character as much. And that's probably saying lots of bad things about me. (laughs) I haven't haven't watched Fleabag, so you're you're safe telling me that. Great, she's a lovely person. <laughs> no, um, I, I just felt like I really related to the character and I thought that she was just like fantastically acted by Phoebe and yeah, just just really brilliant. I also absolutely love Michaela Cole and I know that's two, but they're of the same kind, sort of yeah. like writers, screen screenplay, acting um, and Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You was just a fantastic TV series like exploring consent and boundaries and stuff and I really related to that as well so I think it would be a toss-up but currently Phoebe Waller-Bridge is the background on my phone so she and got it might change Michaela Cole but I think at the moment it's Phoebe. Excellent thank you. The second one is and this is my my personal faith so I don't know why it's in the middle but it is um, name a time in your life that you hated during but now looking back you know that positives came from it. Ooh. I guess you can sort of interpret positives out of negative experiences and somehow make them positive, I guess. I think I would choose DBT because dialectical behavior therapy is just such an intense form of therapy. And I don't think that you're meant to enjoy it <laughs> because it's just really challenging. And I did it for a year and you have one-to-one therapy every week you have group therapy every week which kind of lasts for hours or it feels like it lasts for hours and then you have telephone coaching where you can call the therapist kind of like anytime any day which is like a huge luxury absolutely amazing intense kind of support to stop you or encourage you to use alternative skills to your eating disorder or, or to whatever the target behavior is and I found it so difficult because for one, I really struggled to attend because of ADHD and like sitting in a room and paying attention and found it really stressful and physically uncomfortable place to be. But I managed to stay on the course. I was nearly chucked off a few times because if you, there are very strict rules of like, if you don't come this number of times, you're, ch- you're chucked off. And it's a very sort of rigid program that you have to sign up to. And the therapist is really pushy in DBT. Like it's famous for this like really harsh therapeutic style it's kind of like tough love so very real no beating around the bushes really pushing personal responsibility like it was just really really hard Mm. but I made probably like the most progress on that sort of curve that's taken me up over many many years I think there was a sort of a really sort of sharp uplift during Mm. that EBT and after it when I really tried to put things into place myself And it's always, always stayed with me. And I think 
of myself as a graduate of DBT. So people ask me like, what did you study at university? It's a really common question in Cambridge. Oh, which college did you go to? What did you study? And I'm like, I, I graduated from DBT actually. And they're like, oh, I didn't know which, which college is that. And I'm like, obviously I'm taking the mick a little bit <laughs> of Cambridge life, but I'm like, oh, it's dialectical behavior therapy. It was developed for very suicidal people. <laughs> and that sort of shuts, shuts down the conversation. But I am really proud that I got through it and it was way harder than any degree that I've ever studied, way harder than medical school, way harder than doing a master's at Cambridge. And I am really proud of it that I got through it and it was a horrible experience in a way, but almost like necessary mm. like, to really help me. And, you know, it doesn't always feel good going through recovery. And I'm sure anybody who's listening who is in recovery or been in periods of recovery or through recovery will know that it's really not easy at all and not necessarily pleasant. I do think that we should have things to look forward to and we should, you know, perhaps look forward to therapy even perhaps sometimes, imagine that. But DBT is... is really really harsh um but it did it did really help yeah i am um, i personally i see a counselor once a week and i personally love it i i'm i have often said that i think i'm going to as long as i can afford it pay to see a counselor for the rest of my life um i'll probably yeah. see him less often and maybe maybe like break it down so I'm seeing him like once a month or something. Um, but I just yeah. love I love having that person who is paid to listen to me talk about what's happened to me and like what's happened in the week. I love I love that um, hour of just being like I'm just going to tell you everything that's happened and everything I'm thinking. Um, yeah. yeah, and you know you're paying them for it, so they can't really <laughs> exactly like, they can't they can't run away. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's something that's so valuable and people still have an idea that therapy is for people who are weak or for people who are somehow broken or something, or it's not for them. And if somebody's in therapy, I think that's great. And, and it should be celebrated. And, and, you know, so long as it's the right therapist for you and it's the right kind of style at the right time and it's affordable and accessible and all those things are really important. But I think so many more people should be in therapy and it could be a good cultural shift for us. Cause I know like in, New York or in in LA like everyone has a therapist so mm. it, it should be just seen as much more accepted and much more sort of yeah acceptable to have a therapist and yeah. something that you value and something that you enjoy I really value therapy yeah I I agree 100% I always I always see my um counseling as like a, del a developmental thing rather than like fixing me thing although there are still things I'm working through um but the a lot of it is like you know developing me and kind of working in a, in a positive way like you were speaking about earlier yeah well yeah therapy is a relationship and that good relationships should be about growth and development and there's nothing broken about you from my belief perspective that i don't think people are broken at all i think people are inherently whole they can be very in very broken environments that can be really difficult and you can feel broken but i don't think that people are broken and good relationships should be ones that help you to grow including your therapeutic relationships in a formal sense but you know a lot of your relationships in the rest of your life should be therapeutic it's just that they're not therapists you're not you're not paying them but i do think i do think therapy should be you know more people should do therapy mm, agreed and the final question that's not a question is and this what this one is historically either people have the answer immediately or they take forever to reply <laughs> so here we go a phrase to live by oh this is awful 
This is a question. Right? These are not questions, they're all questions. A yeah. phrase to live by. There's a cliched one that people sometimes say in yoga, like you have everything that you need. But I'm like, no, sometimes you need things from other people, don't you? <laughs> um, so I probably wouldn't say that. You were going to say something. No, I was just going to say that the um, the reason I don't think they're questions because none of them have a question mark at the end. It's it's name a person who inspires you, no question mark. Name a time in your life that you hated, but now looking back, you know, positive came from it, no question mark. And then name a phrase to live by, no question mark. So they're, so they're not questions. questions, they're commands. They're commands, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The three three commands of my own mind's podcast. Yeah. So a phrase to live by. Okay. So I think I have one that I would apply to clinicians, to the GP who's, you know, got eight minutes to see somebody, to somebody struggling with an eating disorder, to somebody struggling in work or to any situation. I believe, and I think it's probably a, belief and part of my faith in humanity you are doing the best that you can with the resources that are available to you I honestly believe that about everybody and I think that it can really help you to see things in a compassionate light as well because often we don't like people's behavior or we don't like people's actions and we can't always understand why Hmm. but I think we try and think you know they are doing the best that they can with the resources that are available to them, then we can perhaps not blame them so much or not take it personally so much and think that, you know, perhaps they just don't have the resources. Resources can be knowledge. Mm. Like people can be ignorant and act out of ignorance and they're still doing the best that they can with the knowledge that's available to them, right? And that's one kind of resource or people doing the best that they can with the circumstances that they're in. And the options might be very, very limited. Like I look back at when I had an eating disorder and developed an eating disorder. And it was almost like a choice that I made because I felt that nobody was listening. And I'm not embarrassed about that and not ashamed of that anymore because I see that I was doing the best that I could with the options that I had. Mm. And I do think that however you phrase it, it's kind of a mantra that I have throughout life, throughout everything. You know, I go to the GP still or I go to healthcare and I don't always get the response that I like because the waiting list is whatever many months long. They don't have the resources. You know, they're still doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. It's not the GP's fault. They can't refer you or the the eating disorder service has got a waiting list for this long. Like they're doing the best with the resources they have. So we might have to think about the resources or we might have to think about the context or the environment and the bigger systemic things as well. But yeah, that's a bit of a mantra that I live by. I really like that. I really like that, James. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was really nice to chat to you and to meet you. And I know that I was supposed to do the podcast a few weeks ago and I didn't. And I'm glad that we got around to it. Me too. Me too. Thank you for being patient. Oh, it was an excellent conversation. I'm, I'm, I feel like we touched on so much in, in quite a short amount of time. So yeah, I'm really, really happy and I'm excited for it to go out. Um, everyone listening at home, thank you again for making it all the way through a podcast. And I hope to see you, well, I'll never see you, but I hope to read that you listened online. I don't know what I'm saying. At the next one. Bye. 
thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out mayaminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.